Listen now, I invite you with open ears to this book that we love. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, in the reading of Scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of all of our hearts this morning, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. We pray this through the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, Let's begin with the very end of this passage. Verse 7, the last line there says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the key line in this text, and it sheds light on the rest of it, which we're going to walk through here in just a moment. All of our religion, all of our religious activity is pointless apart from, as he says in this last line, a genuine fear of God. So I want to take a moment this morning to clarify what the fear of God is. It is a phrase that you will encounter frequently in Scripture. And it's used in Scripture to mean really one of three things. Title, terror, or trust. Title, terror, or trust. And what really helped me understand that some years ago was a passage in the Old Testament book of Jonah where in the first chapter, all three forms of that fear of God appear in the same place. So sometimes the fear of God is used as a title. In other words, it differentiates the people of God from people who worship a different God or no God at all. Similar to the way in our culture that when someone refers to himself or herself as a Christian, they're not necessarily saying that they wholeheartedly are committed to the ways of Jesus. They might simply mean that they're not Buddhist, or they're not Muslim, or they're not Hindu, or they're not Jewish. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's on this ship fleeing from Nineveh, fleeing from the presence of God, or at least trying to, and the sailors with him ask him who he is. He responds by saying in that moment that he is one who fears God. I'm a God-fearer. Now, in that moment, he's fleeing from God. He is literally running away from faithfulness to God. So when he says in that moment, I fear God, it's not like an expression of his deep trust and reference there. He's literally fleeing away from God. He's using it as a title. It differentiates him from the the pagan sailors and the worship of a different God. Other times, the fear of God means terror. And that's the initial response from the sailors on the ship with Jonah. When they find out that Jonah is fleeing from God, it says that they are exceedingly afraid. That they fear the power and they fear the holiness of God, which they are witnessing in the strength of this storm that's unfolded around them. 
And there is a real value to this kind of fear of God. We can become, and I would assume many of us do become, have become, far too comfortable with what is holy and what is powerful and what is infinitely beyond our ability to control or to comprehend. So don't, out of familiarity, if you have been a Christian for a while, if you studied the Bible for a while, don't immediately always jump to the third definition of fearing God. There is something right and good about these sailors recognizing who God really is and being exceedingly afraid at the demonstration of his power. But there is a third meaning to the fear of God, and it's trust. It's trust. We are not created by God to ultimately be afraid of him but to be near to him, to be at peace with him, and to trust him. And at the end of Jonah chapter 1, the sailors, they see the work of God, and they believe in God, and it says there that they feared the Lord exceedingly. So this kind of fear is respect and it's reverence for who God is. And it's so much so that as it does with these sailors in Jonah 1, it spills out of them into worship. It spills out of them into this willing kind of submission to God. So this fear of God, this kind of fear of God acknowledges you are God, I am not, and because of that I will trust in you, I will walk in your ways. And it's this kind of fear, this third kind of fear that I think Koholeth particularly has in mind when he writes there in verse 7, God is the one that you must fear. With that backdrop then, two things that I want to walk through in the rest of our time the vanity of empty religious activity, and the vanity of empty vows. So first, the vanity of empty religious activity. Uh, These first three verses uh, of chapter 5, they're about regular recurring religious activities, gathering for worship and prayer. Guard your steps, Koholeth says. In other words, watch your step when you go to the house of God. Why? Why? Because going with the people of God to the house of God is not a casual, neutral kind of activity. What we do when we gather for worship is incredibly important. And it's better, Kohola says, to simply come and to listen than to participate in that foolishly. At the time that he writes this, uh, one of the primary religious activities that would occur at the house of God, at the temple, were animal sacrifices. And a couple months ago in August, my friend Alec Millen was here. He preached from Leviticus about what that entailed and just the sheer number of sacrifices that would occur at the temple every single day. Sacrifices were a good and a necessary part of faithful worship for the people of God. They were commanded by God under the Old Covenant. But there's also this refrain that shows up in Scripture and that Koheleth begins to echo here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That what God has always been after is not really the sacrifice itself, but the heart of the one who offers it. 1 Samuel 15, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Psalm 51, You do not delight God in sacrifice, or I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Hosea chapter 6, For I desire, God being I, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then there's Proverbs 15. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. In other words, 
this religious activity does not magically in and of itself and apart from a specific kind of heart posture accomplish anything. It does not make the wicked righteous. It makes the wicked a fool to do so. It makes the wicked a fool. And rather than a good act in and of itself, the act of sacrificing becomes, as the last word of verse 1 says, evil. It becomes evil. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? This is some scathing language in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. But think about this. The sacrificial system is God's people putting forward for themselves a substitute. It is God providing a way of atoning for the guilt of the sin of his people. So in his mercy, the the righteous anger, the wrath of God against sin is going to be poured out on that animal rather than on his people. But if you aren't a worshiper in your heart, if you're just a casual participant, or worse, if you have zero intent to actually follow the way of this God, then when you participate in sacrifices, you celebrate something that you're on the wrong side of. You celebrate something you're on the wrong side of. You hold high the justice and the judgment of God when that justice and judgment for you is not salvation but your destruction. So at best, someone who worships like this, as Koholeth talks about in Ecclesiastes 5, at best they're short-sighted or they're just ignorant of what they're doing. At worst, it's utter mockery of God. It's, and, it's, and it's heaping more judgment on yourself. And lest we think this is something that only applies to worship under the old covenant, it's exactly for this reason why you will hear myself or one of our other elders here every week tell you not to take communion if you are not a Christian. There's a, there's a more winsome and a less winsome way to say that, uh, both of them are true. What you always, almost always hear me say from up here is the winsome reason. And that is that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the act of eating the bread and drinking the cup, when we do that, we proclaim something. It's, an, it's a proclamation that we believe this to be true. And so I always say something like, you don't have to proclaim something that you don't believe. You can remain where you're seated. Actually feel the freedom to just observe and listen rather than to participate in something that you don't believe. But there's also in that a protective measure for those who aren't Christians along the very same lines of what Ecclesiastes 5 says. And it's the unwinsome reason why if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take communion. The very next verses in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to say that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without knowing what this is and why you are doing it, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the table of the Lord that we come to each week, it displays the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. What we celebrate is that what animal sacrifices could never accomplish week after week and year after year, the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, but has by sacrificing his own body and his own blood. And so this table is a picture of the mercy of God that is held out to us. It is also, though, a reminder, a picture of God's judgment against sin that has been absorbed by the once-for-all work of Jesus. And so if you are not one who trusts in that work so that you might then receive the mercy of God, to participate at this table would be likewise to celebrate something that you are on the wrong side of. 
And so it would be far better for you to observe rather than to foolishly participate and in so doing heap judgment on yourself. Similarly, when we pray, which is what Kohaleth gets into next, when we open our mouths to speak to the God of heaven and earth as audacious as that thought is, we should be slow to speak. And so verses two and three, it says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He goes on to say, it's a fool's voice that comes with many words, and therefore, because God is in heaven and you are on earth, let your words be few. Let your words be few. Again, the, the, the real issue is the heart of the one who is praying. It's not ultimately about a quantity of words. Like, when do I kind of hit my quota and then cross it and I should like not say any more words to God today? It's not about that. It's about the posture of our heart. And centuries after Koholeth writes this, Jesus is going to say of the Jewish religious leaders that they love, they pray because they love to be heard by other people. And he's going to say of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish religious people, that they pray to their pagan deities by heaping up empty phrases. They think that they're going to be heard by the gods because of their multitude of words. But here's the reality. If God is there, if God is truly in heaven while we are here on earth, our abundance of words does nothing. He already knows who we are and what we need and the depths of our soul, the, the joys and the sorrows of it. And if we pray, beginning to recognize that, recognizing who we're actually praying to, then it will often lead us in the recognition in that moment to stop our mouths and to be silent and just to listen. See, the fear of God makes all the difference when it comes to religious activity. It will transform ritual into reverence. It will transform ritual into reverence. And so rather than just eating bread and drinking wine, we perceive the scandalous mercy of God and the judgment that made that mercy so necessary. And rather than heaping up an abundance of empty words, we perceive the radical and yet simply ordinary grace of God that he has opened up a way for us to commune with him in prayer. Those of us who are Christians need this kind of fear of God rekindled because empty prayer is at least as much our problem as it is anybody else's. Our familiarity with the things of God can breed contempt or it can breed apathy. It can breed a lack of awe, which is perhaps even worse than contempt. We, we take for granted that the creator and the sustainer of all things has made himself known personally, relationally, in a way that we can commune with him at all. And so we rejoice in and we sing about every week and we rehearse this, this truth that God is imminent, right? That he has come near to us and that he invites us to pray to him. He invites us to call him even Father. But God is also transcendent. He is completely holy. He is other in his perfection. And as Ecclesiastes 5 says, he is the one we must fear. I love how Charles Bridges put this 150 years ago. He put it this way. God's goodness must not cause us to forget his greatness. The throne of grace is a throne of majesty. And therefore, the confidence of the child, coming to God as our father, the confidence of the child must be tempered with the humility of the sinner. Second, Let's talk about the vanity of empty vows. 
a vanity of empty vows. Where the first half of this text pertains to regular religious activities, gathering for worship and prayer. The second half is about this special action of taking a vow. So under the old covenant, the people of God would occasionally make vows for a variety of things. Uh, Often a person would ask God to intervene in their life, intervene in their circumstances in a special way, and would commit to do something for God in return for him doing, doing whatever it was they asked him to do. One example is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. A woman named Hannah is unable to have children. She desperately wants to have children, so she cries out to God, and she says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you and the service of you for all of the days of his life. And so God provides a son for Hannah, and Hannah, in turn, takes Samuel to the temple where he lives and grows as a priest of God. As is probably obvious, paying vows is costly. It's costly. Maybe it was an additional sacrifice, which for people in this cultural moment was part of their livelihood. Maybe like Hannah, it was having a son, but forever living distantly from them because he's in the service of God. Because of this cost, whatever it might have been, when the time would come then to pay what you vowed, there was going to be a strong temptation for the people of God to not follow through. And so Koholeth says here, be careful. Be careful. Better to never make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. Don't Don't run your mouth flippantly with no real thought or intent of following through. Don't come back later and say, whoops, made a mistake, shouldn't have done that. That's what it says there. Don't don't tell the messenger why I made a mistake. That's like in vernacular, it's like, whoops, guess I shouldn't have made that vow. And if you do make a vow, he says, don't delay in paying it. These verses, in the ears of the original audience who would have heard this book of Ecclesiastes, would immediately elicit reminders of a man named Jephthah. Jephthah, crazy name that we don't really see many people name that in our culture today. But during the time of the Judges, you can read his story in Judges chapter 11. Jephthah made a vow that if God would deliver his enemies into his hands, that when he returned home from battle, the first thing that would come out of his house, out of his front door, he would sacrifice as a burnt offering to God. And this became, for the people of God, the epitome of a rash, hasty, foolish vow. Like, what in the world did he think was going to come out of his front door? You know, like, was he miserable in his marriage? And like, maybe there's a loophole. Whatever it was, when we read Judges 11... We know it didn't play out the way he expected or wanted because he returns home. The first thing out of his door is his only child, his daughter. And it doesn't tell us specifically, but it's almost painfully obvious that he went through with that in Judges chapter 11. Here's the point. God is not some kind of cosmic genie in the sky that we manipulate by our making of vows. This isn't some kind of game. Where, where you and I commit to things before the face of God and then bail on them without any consequence. Why not? Well, because the fabric of the universe, the fabric of the kingdom of God, holds together by the making and the keeping of vows. Promises, covenants, that God will be our God, that we will be his people, that God will crush the head of the serpent that led the, his people into sin, that God will make a people for himself and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed 
through them. That sin will not have the last word, but that God in Christ will make all things new. If these vows fall apart, so does your life. So does our salvation. We are meant to mirror God in making and keeping vows. Precious few. Precious few. And by all means, not hastily, not rashly. It's why Jesus will say later, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't want to be in the business of making vows often about everything or anything. But to make them and not pay them is an affront to God. It's a mockery of the God who upholds our very lives by the making and keeping of his own vows. There are a few times in your life where you will make vows. And you should make vows. One is that we make them when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When, when you surrender the control of your life, whether you vocalize it this way specifically or not, you're vowing in that to follow the ways of Jesus, to trust him, to follow him. Count the cost before you do that. Count the cost before you do that. Consider what it will mean and what it will cost you to keep that vow, to worship God as the only God, to follow the implications of his existence and his presence in this world and in your life all the way through. There's some current studies in the United States that show a rapid rise in what are called the nuns. Uh, not the Catholic women that wear habits, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. By that meaning, people who claim no religious affiliation, uh, many of which would be atheistic or agnostic. On the one hand, we see the rise of these studies and the rise of the nuns, and we lament that as Christians because we sincerely and deeply long for people to know and to trust in Jesus Christ. But I want to submit this to you this morning. On the other hand, it is better, far better, that someone call himself or herself a nun than that they claim the name of Jesus with zero intent to actually follow King Jesus. The, the rise of the nuns is discouraging. I feel that as a pastor. It's discouraging, but it's a lot more accurate. It's a lot more honest. And in that sense, it is better than even past generations, I think, in our country have been. Another example where it's good to make vows. Those of us who are married, those of us who will get married someday, we make vows to our spouse. And you do that if it's done in any semblance of a Christian marriage with a, a Christian minister or someone that does the, the service. It's done that before God, very explicitly in the service. It's not just before the people, it's actually done before God. The primary reason that divorce, as prevalent as that is in our day, that divorce is so painful, it's actually not because of the wounds that are given back and forth between spouses in a marriage, although those are incredibly painful. The primary reason is that because when divorce happens, it's the breaking of a vow. It's the breaking of a covenant that was made before the face of God. It's a tear in the very fabric of God's good world. But even apart from divorce, and I would beg the married couples in the room to hear me on this this morning, take your marriage vows seriously. Take your marriage vows Seriously, don't ever pat yourself on the back for avoiding divorce if you've become content and complacent, not actually fulfilling your marriage vows. Far too many marriages among Christians are not characterized by love and by grace and by mutual thriving. 
Far too many marriages among Christians are not a display to the world of the servant-hearted sacrificial love between Jesus Christ and his church. And we trifle with God and we make a mockery of God when we congratulate ourselves for simply staying in the marriage. Maybe you think it would have been better for you not to make those vows in the first place, not to get married in the first place, but you made them. So for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your soul and the fear of God, pay what you vow and do not delay. The last one I'll mention. We will also make vows when we formally become part of a church community, of a church family. We ask here, for example, at Liberty Church, everyone who comes into covenant to affirm five vows. Uh, The first three of those are all about your relationship with Jesus, your faith in him, your commitment to live out the implications of the Christian life. The fourth and fifth ones, though, are commitments that you make to be part of a specific local group of Christians. And as we try to make that very clear in the process of coming into covenant, that, that obligates us to something in each other's lives. It obligates us to be involved and committed to one another. It obligates us not to only seek our own growth and thriving in Christ, but the growth of others. It obligates us to serve and to show up and to pray and to love one another. And as I look out and see many of you in this room believe that and own that and you own it well, and I personally and my family and the rest of the men, women, and children of this church are blessed because of it. But there are others of you that need to, even this week, pull out those five vows and reread them and consider them and ask yourself, what did I commit to? And am I doing that? And I want to encourage you to do both of these things. If you're married, spend some time this week or even today, find your marriage vows. You may have to dig for a little while. You may have to email a pastor that officiated your wedding. But find them, pull them back out, Spend some time rereading them. Let it lead to some honest reflection and conversation. Hopefully you'll be encouraged, but it would be good for you no matter what happened in light of that. For those of you in covenant, find the in covenant vows. If you can't find them, let me send them to you again. Just let me know. I'm happy to do that. Reread them. Let it lead to reflection and conversation. Let it lead to action where it needs to. As Koholeth has found out, as many of us have found out, religious activities in and of themselves our vanity. As attempts to create meaning and attempts to create purpose in life, they just come up woefully short, and they always, always will. But God is the one you must fear. This makes all, all the difference. It not only transforms ritual into reverence, it transforms good intentions into integrity. You do not need the fear of God in your life to be a person of good intention. You absolutely need the fear of God in your life to be someone who pays what he or she owes, who follows through on the commitments that you make. To do that, we need the fear of God. Why? Why? Because, and you already know this, we will miss. We will fall short and we will not be the first to do so. This is a God intimately acquainted with his people not paying what they owe. A God who liberated his people from slavery in Egypt only to find them making a cow out of their gold jewelry and worshiping that instead. A God who called Peter out of the futility of his life and made him a fisher of men 
who then heard Peter vow that he would never forsake Jesus, that he would die with Jesus before denying him, and then looked him in the eye across the courtyard after the rooster crowed. But this is also a God of mercy, abounding, as we read this morning, in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in his mercy, God will abundantly pardon our inevitable failures in paying what we owe. As Psalm 103 puts it, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who what? Who fear him. Who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And get this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who what? Who fear him. The fear of God not only transforms us into people of integrity, it transforms us into people of genuine repentance. And the beautiful paradox is that in the fear of God, our genuine repentance is faithfulness. It is integrity. The fabric of the kingdom of God is is woven with the making and the keeping of vows. But praise be to God, the vows that uphold the universe are not yours and mine. They are the very vows of God. And so when we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot forsake himself, the Apostle Paul says. And so Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, came into the world, the Spirit of the living God resting upon him, as Isaiah 11 says, and his delight was in the fear of the Lord. God is the one that you must fear, and there has been not a person on this earth ever who feared God like Jesus. No one submits to him more gladly or perfectly than him, humbling himself to the point of death, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and all the promises, vows, commitments, and covenants of God find their yes and find their amen in him. So men and women, may you fear God. Worship and pray with reverence. Be slow and few with your words. Never be hasty or rash with your vows. Pay what you owe and do not delay. And when you fail, likewise, may you fear God. Cry out in repentance with confidence that you will receive mercy. Because his ultimate answer to our failure is his own faithfulness. May the fear of God lead us over and again to look upon and to believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray for us. God, would you forgive our lack of fear of you? Would you forgive the ways that familiarity has led us to not have this kind of deep reverence and awe and trembling at the holiness and perfection that is you, God? Would you lead us to be people of repentance? Would you assure our hearts that our repentance is a demonstration that we fear you? Would you make us people of integrity? Would you make us people of reverence? Would we be people who worship not ritualistically but reverently and and pay the vows that we vow because of and as a reflection of your covenant-making, covenant-keeping promises and vows that you have fulfilled in Christ? And it's in his name that we pray and it's to his table that we now come. Amen.